The introduction to this episode of Def Let Pod is based on a true story. Now before you settle down for the main feature, I want to tell you that story. It was on the wintry eve of January 2021, and a young Def Leppard podcast creator sat on his couch at home, donating money to poor children across the world. He was very handsome, he had a head of thick, luscious hair, and all of a sudden the telephone rang. Our hero picked up the phone. He could have picked up a thousand phones made of lead. That's how strong he was. And on the other end of the phone was no other than Def Leppard drummer Rick Allen. Now I can't reveal the details of that personal phone call. But in summary, Rick Allen waxed lyrical about the sheer prowess of Def Leppard. Explaining how it had elevated Def Leppard's music to even headier heights. And even he was reflecting on the newfound meaning and nuances in the songs covered to date. Now after I calmed Rick down, I said, What is it that you want, Rick? And he said, I demand to choose the song for episode 11. Now I tried to reason with him, explaining I was inundated with requests from all of the fellas in the band on a daily basis, but he was insistent, and I acquiesced. Go on, Rick. Because it's you, mate. What do you want? Billy's got a gun, he said. You've got it, I said. Thanks, Neil. This is the greatest day of my life, Rick said. It's okay. You run along now, I said. And that is exactly how it happened. Now, you might hear stories to the contrary. You might hear something more along the lines that one night, a bald... Overweight man with skinny arms was lazily scrolling through Twitter and saw that Rick Allen was tweeting and decided to take a punt and asked Rick if he would pick the song for episode 11. You may have heard that much to Def Leppard's surprise, Rick actually replied and tweeted, and I quote, So many to choose from. What are your favourites? And you may have heard how on the spot I suggested Die Hard the Hunter, Love Bites, Work It Out, Billy's Got a Gun, and Wings of an Angel. And you might have heard that Rick replied, Billy is cool. Smiling sunglasses emoji, he said. So, get your popcorn ready, sit back, definitely don't turn off your phone, and now enjoy Rick's choice. This episode's main feature, Billy's Got a Gun. For legal reasons, please note that the first part of that story was not true. Def Leppard don't do concept albums. It's almost guaranteed that Def Leppard will never do a concept album. But if you were going to peruse their back catalogue, the one album where you can find a golden thread of a theme, a thread that will show itself and then disappear for a couple of songs, but show itself again at different stages throughout. Well, that album is Pyromania. And you see, Pyromania is Def Leppard's most cinematic album. Whether it be cinematic production, elements of theatre, elements of drama, and narratives and storytelling. It's all there in Pyromania. From Photograph, the song about the unattainable film star and now synonymous with Marilyn Monroe, 
to Die Hard the Hunter, a song about a soldier struggling to return to civilization, and a song cited at different points by the band as being inspired either by the movie Deer Hunter or the movie Rambo First Blood. To the song Action Not Words, a song explicitly about movies, which mentions Bogart and Monroe and exclaims, I'm going to make my own movie. And then the stage fright with the sheer theatre in the opening scream where Joe shouts, I said welcome to my show. To Too Late for Love, with its bags of atmosphere and drama, where there's a cast of thousands waiting and the queen of the dream stands before them all. She stretches out her hand as the curtain starts to fall. And let's not forget the actor and the clown. And then there's the cover of the album itself with the crosshairs and the explosion in a high-rise building, which itself looks like a scene from a 1980s action blockbuster. Whether consciously or subconsciously, Pyromania is cinematic. It's an early 80s action album. And in this episode, episode 11 of Def Pod, the officially unofficial Def Leppard podcast, we'll take a look at the song Billy's Got a Gun and discover why not only is there a case that this is the most cinematic song on Pyromania, but indeed that it may just be the most cinematic song ever produced by Def Leppard. Let's see where Billy's story takes us. Let's go. Billy's Got a Gun is track number 10 of 10 on the all-killer, no-filler album that is Pyromania. It is, of course, an album-only track, and it wasn't released as a single at any point. It does, however, rear its head in a few places on various single releases. So, for example, you can find it on the B-side to the US release of Rock of Ages, which, of course, is also from Pyromania. And there's a live version of the track recorded in Tilburg in 1987 in the Netherlands, which also features on the B-side to the single release of Love Bites from 1988, obviously off the Hysteria album. And we can use the introduction from Joe to that very live version as the thin end of the wedge to start opening up this truly brilliant song. Okay, this one from the Pyromania album. This one's about a naughty little boy from New York City. He used to be called Peter Mensch, but he changed his name to Billy. Now, very rarely did Def Leppard provide any exposition of the meaning of their songs when they play live to introduce them. And here, the reference to the naughty little boy from New York City called Peter Mensch is an in-joke, Peter Mensch being Def Leppard's manager at the time. However, it does anchor the song to two points. Number one, that it's about a naughty boy. And number two, that in his mind's eye, Joe sees the story of Billy's Got a Gun occurring and playing out in New York City. And while over the years you don't always get a carbon copy explanation of exactly what this song is about, and there remains a little ambiguity, we're on pretty steady ground if we go with the simple quote from Joe that Billy's Got a Gun is about a wronged guy on the underground with a gun in his pocket, ready to go off. While the subject matter of Billy's Got a Gun isn't open to a massive amount of debate, there is an interesting bone of contention in regard to how important the subject matter of the song is, the story itself, the lyrics. 
because in early 2021, Def Leppard released an online museum of sorts called The Vault. And The Vault contains a track-by-track commentary of every song on Pyromania, including Billy's Got a Gun. And in short, in the video about Billy, Joe is keen to place all of the focus on the music itself. It's the musicality which really matters, he says. And what the song is actually about, well, not so much. Of course, views and opinions will change over four decades. And quite interestingly, this is different to what Joe was thinking back in 1983. In a quote from shortly after that time, it's clear that Joe was making a concerted effort on at least a couple of songs in Pyromania to give them a bit more substance and a bit more gravitas. And he said this, and I quote, I was going through a period where I wanted to write about something other than sex, drugs, women backstage and Jack Daniels. I wanted to deal with a serious subject I didn't necessarily have to be a big expert on. So, what does a discerning gentleman do if he wants to write about something serious but isn't an expert? Well, he turns to the movies, of course. And Joe did this for two songs in particular on Pyromania, Die Hard the Hunter and Billy's Got a Gun. We'll come back to Billy in a minute, but first, let's talk about Die Hard the Hunter because these songs are somewhat of a pair. And also, what fool wouldn't want to find an excuse to listen to a little bit of Die Hard the Hunter? I wouldn't deprive you of that, Def Leppard fans. I am not a monster. So on the face of things, Die Hard the Hunter is the most obvious movie-related and cinematic song on Pyromania. Its subject matter, as we've discussed, is of a soldier struggling to adjust to civilization post-war, and it's inspired by the movie from which it takes part of its title, 1978's Deer Hunter. Now, if you haven't seen Deer Hunter, you may know it from the famous Russian roulette scene. So, depending on what you read, you'll also see the song being attributed to 1982's Rambo First Blood as well. But what ties these movies together, and Die Hard the Hunter and Billy, is that they're all about unhinged dudes with guns. It's all very serious, but you don't need a PhD to work that out or to write a song about it. So, beyond the explicit reference in the title of the song and the subject matter, Die Hard the Hunter initially sounds more strikingly cinematic than Billy's Got a Gun. Just have a listen to how it begins. As you can hear, you have the sound effects you'd associate with a war movie. You've got the appreggio of chords to provide an atmosphere. And then you've got the lyrics in the beginning as well. It's the very clear beginning of a narrative. Let's welcome home, soldier boy. Far away. As it goes. Maybe a little bit better than that. So, tuck into your popcorn. The movie stroke song is about to begin when you listen to Die Hard the Hunter. Now, Die Hard and Billy are the two clear epic songs on the album. But Die Hard feels a bit more epic. It's that little bit longer at 6 minutes and 16 seconds compared to Billy's 5 minutes and 57 seconds. And even then, what we think of as the main substance of Billy's Got a Gun actually finishes around a 5 minute mark. We'll cover the last minute of that song in some detail later on. Also, Die Hard the Hunter feels, at least, to be made up of more component parts and travels down a greater number of different musical avenues before coming back on itself. 
So really, in an episode about a cinematic Def Leppard song, shouldn't this all be about Die Hard the Hunter? Well, possibly. But it's not what Rick asks for, and what Rick wants, Rick gets, rightly so. So, let's make a case for Billy's Got a Gun. You'd think a song about a man called Billy with a gun would inevitably have a heaviness or an intensity about it. Well, that's not always the case. That's the singer Miss Lee with her breezy ditty, also called Billy's Got a Gun. And in a similar vein, surely a song set at least in part on the New York underground or subway would have an inherent grittiness and darkness. Excuse me, watch it, pardon me, Sunny. Down below the street, can you dig your steady beat? It's a subway. Subway! Moving right along, hear the rhythm loud and strong. It's the subway. Subway! There isn't any room in this town. They put all the trains down under the ground. Buy a token now for a ride in Super Wow on the subway. The cast of Sesame Street there, marvelling at the convenience of the underground urban transit system known as the subway. Now clearly neither of the approaches we've just heard are going to be suitable for a young rock band in the early 80s who want to write a song about a naughty boy from New York City who is being wronged and has a gun in his pocket waiting to go off. Instead, the inspiration again comes from a movie and a very specific type of movie. Joe said this and I quote, I'd written Billy's Got a Gun for the album, a kind of death wish scene, a real New York subway song about a guy that fell into bad company and turned into a troublemaker. So Death Wish is a film that was released in 1974 and it features Charles Bronson. And in a nutshell, it's about a man whose home is invaded one night and his wife is killed and his daughter's raped. And he then goes on somewhat of a vigilante murdering rampage, shooting no-gooders. And this all occurs on and below the streets of Manhattan in the subway. It's that real gritty depiction of the dark underbelly and crime that dominates movies from the 1970s set in New York. And the main theme from Death Wish doesn't sound at all like Billy's Got a Gun. It's by Herbie Hancock. However, it does suggest why Billy's Got a Gun sounds like it does. See, it's all about the mood, isn't it? The creation of a mood or feeling or atmosphere. That's the job of a movie soundtrack. Audio that reflects the story. The Sesame Street subway song doesn't conjure up the mood of Death Wish. Herbie Hancock, on the other hand, does. Now, this is different to when a story is simply picked and thrown onto a movie soundtrack. The two notable examples of a Death Leopard song on movie soundtracks is Two Steps Behind on The Last Action Hero and the lesser known When Saturday Comes from the British movie of the same name about a struggling footballer or soccer player in Sheffield. And what we're talking about here is when a song is knowingly created to reflect a story theme or a particular part of that story. So for example, take this by Def Leppard, another song from the movie When Saturday Comes. Now let's call a spade a spade here. None of us are putting that tune in our Def Leppard Top 50 playlist. And there's a legitimate reason why. 
That track's called Jimmy's Theme, and it's very much background music in the scene of a movie. It's almost a type of music you're not really supposed to consciously hear. It's there to accentuate the melancholy in the story, the downtrodden feelings of a man failing to fulfil his dream of becoming a successful footballer. It's all about the mood of the music. So back to Billy's Got a Gun. The reference to Death Wish isn't necessarily about the song having the same story as the film Death Wish, because although it's in the same ballpark, it doesn't. It's about evoking that same sense of doom, of heaviness, of tension. And of Billy's Got a Gun, Joe said, It was intended to be claustrophobic. It was a type of rhythm we'd never used before. So the music came first with the song Billy's Got a Gun. But the mood of the music, the claustrophobia, led Joe to seek a setting and a story from a movie or a particular type of 70s gritty movie to match it. But rather than create a background theme, they kept all of the mood and all of the atmosphere and created a marvellous in-your-face rock song. Let's have a little look at it in a bit more detail. So taking a start of the song, we can immediately hear that different type of rhythm that Joe talks about. This is the first instance of how the cinema of Billy's Got a Gun is different to the cinema of Die Hard the Hunter. Now you can dance to Die Hard the Hunter, Def Leppard has tried it and was amazing. But try dancing to Billy's Got a Gun and it just looks like you're stumbling down steps in slow motion. If rhythmically Die Hard the Hunter is the fast flowing action film, then sonically Billy's Got a Gun is the low budget gritty indie film that feels just that little bit uncomfortable. There's an element of musical discord in that rhythm which sets us up to meet Billy, the boy or the man who's got confusion in his mind, he's going to shoot you down, he's got evil in his eyes and a reason to despise. Billy's a lad that you want to avoid and unsettles you. Now we've said earlier that the song itself doesn't sound like the Death Wish theme, the movie which influenced it. However, both the theme of Death Wish and Billy's Got a Gun use similar techniques in their early parts. So first listen to how the Death Wish theme plays out after the initial noisy and ominous opening. Now compare that to the way Billy's Got a Gun shifts from its heavy opening into the verse. key thing that a song needs to do if it's going to build and build tension throughout leading to a climax is that it needs to start at a low enough point to be able to build from and that's what both songs do after their initial heavy starts that set the scene they then bring it right down and the space which in the case of Billy's Got a Gun is punctuated by those little guitar licks as we're introduced to Billy and his gun for the first time and begin to find out about him. It then doesn't take long for us to find out that danger is in the air and it's in that explicit cry of danger that the song really begins to ramp up. And I 
love those backing vocals. It's almost like a theatrical call and response and it feeds the drama nicely as Joe moves into his top-notch screaming mode, which is ubiquitous on Pyromania. So the song ebbs and flows for a bit. And what I love lyrically about the second verse is that it introduces a bit of light and shade to the depiction of Billy as evil as we learn that this poor lad was locked inside a room without a door and his innocence he suffered for. You begin to get that sense that he's been mistreated and had his innocence stolen from him in some way. And all of a sudden, this rampaging thug feels a bit more complex, a bit more sympathetic. And it's at this point where the claustrophobia that Joe talks about is at its most intense, as there's a sound of thunder, possibly a gunshot and the floor's crimson, possibly with blood, and the crowd gather around Billy, and it feels like he's trapped. Billy then escapes the scene as we hear he's on the run and the first solo kicks in and it's an extended musical section then which you can imagine is a soundtrack for a running Billy in our movie. Finally, as Joe, who sounds like he's gargling razor blades at this point, he screams that Billy is going to get you, and we get this ambiguous ending. marvellous stuff it's a real lyrical and musical narrative that begins with the threat of violence and ends with two gunshots i'd pay to see this film one thing about billy's got a gun that can pass you by is the amount of modern 80s production techniques and technology that it uses so you'll most likely know about guitar chords being recorded one string at a time on part of the song hysteria but that very same technique was being used five years earlier in the recording of Billy's Got a Gun. Producer Mutt Lang talked about it, and this is what he said. Let's take Billy's Got a Gun. That big orchestral riff is in C, which is a really ballsless key. But the riff only sounded good in C, so we couldn't move it out of there. And in order to get a good cutting sound and still keep the bottom end nice and fat, we had to work on the sound in stages. And that meant in some cases working on only one guitar string at a time. And we'd get a powerful sound with a lot of attack on one string. Then we'd set up a clean harmony on a lower one. And after that we would cut the exact same riff on those strings with a more honky sound to get a solid mid-range. And then we'd do the same riff a third time to get a real booming sound down below. And that would be one guitar three weeks later. So that's three weeks for the guitars alone. But Billy is also layered with all sorts of snap crackles and pops and cinematic sound effects that add a load of texture and theatre. But before we play a few of those bits, I want you to listen to this. 
It's a reproduction of Billy's Got a Gun, so it sounds like an early 1980s arcade game. I don't know about you, but I really like that. I shouldn't, but I do. And it surprises me to what extent it does actually work and captures a little bit of the essence of Billy's Got a Gun. And I think it's the very 80s-ness of it that does it. Because while Billy doesn't sound dated in a negative way, some of the synth effects in it are very of the time. So this is best listened to on headphones. But I've listened to these little sections now that we put together. And instead of listening to the guitars and the bass and the vocals or the drums, try and focus in on the sound effects that are going on in the background, and hopefully you can hear them. Die Hard The Hunter is a song that most obviously has keyboards in it and a cinematic sound effects, but it's all there and Billy's got a gun too, providing an audio version of widescreen, where while you're focusing on the main action, there's these little added details in there in your peripheral vision, or in this case, your peripheral hearing, and it's 80s-tastic. Right then, talking of interesting sound effects, shall we do it? Shall we talk about this? Now for those of you who don't know, this goes on for just under a minute, right at the end of Billy's Got a Gun, and it closes the Pyromania album in very unusual fashion. Now this part was playfully given the title, March of the Dreaded Zultrons by the band. This in itself sounds like the title of a 1950s B-movie. Now there's a very good chance that this was absentmindedly thrown onto the end of the track, and it serves no purpose, and is mere indulgence. I think that that is highly, highly likely. However, there's no deep diving podcast fun whatsoever in taking that terrible attitude. So, let's at least consider one consequence of the inclusion of March of the Dreaded Zultrons. No matter how unlikely it was that it was intentional. First, let's consider this. You'll no doubt recognise the creepy tones of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, which was made even more creepy with its now synonymous inclusion in the Exorcist movie. And it does seem to Def Leppard Pod that there is, quietly, a tradition of British rock musicians making creepy music. And I challenge any of you to listen to The Wall by Pink Floyd or Tommy by The Who in the dark on your own and not be reaching for that light switch after a few songs. Now interestingly, both of those concept albums come with freaky 1970s movies attached, 
movies that imprint images on your brain with essentially generic abuse of vulnerable people and it's all just a little bit horrible and makes the music just, I don't know, just sound creepy. Now March of the Dreaded Zultrons isn't necessarily creepy, however it is uncomfortable listening and it's not particularly pleasant. Bear in mind, Def Leppard could have jokingly called this absolutely anything, but instinctively the sound of it conjured up the March of Dreaded Creatures. They didn't call it unicorns and rainbows, for example, because it's not a pretty sound. And we talked earlier about Discord and Billy's Got a Gun. Sound that sits uneasily in the ear. And this, whether knowingly or not, is surely the cherry on the Discord cake, at the climax of an unsettling song about a troubled young man and danger in the air. This arguably turns that uncomfortable screw just that little bit tighter. Either that, or they had this knocking around and they threw it on at the end for a laugh. You decide. And we're coming to the end of tonight's main feature, but before we close the curtains, let's just consider one last cinematic element of Billy's Got a Gun. Because, like all movies, this song has one key element. A central character whose story that we follow. Def Leppard's back catalogue isn't exactly littered with a range of interesting characters. But, for a little bit of fun, let's see if you can think of five Def Leppard songs about people who are identified in some way in their titles. Now, I'll give you ten seconds of March of the Dreaded Zultrons to gather your thoughts. But if you don't get the obvious one, and to be honest, if you don't get two of these, you clearly haven't been listening, you'll have to stay behind after class. So, are you ready? Here we go. get them we of course had lady strange the hunter from die hard the hunter billy with his gun of course the demolition man and the bad actress 
a dysfunctional lot, I'm sure that you'll agree. A ragtag bunch of misfits and possibly the worst five-a-side football team ever or soccer for those of you in the States. We could have, of course, also had the 21st century Sha-la-la-la girl. I had to count the Lars then to make sure I got it right. However, we wanted a nice round number of five here on Def Left Pod and professional judgments is being used when determining the best five songs of those six. Ultimately though, in this collection of character-driven songs, Billy stands alone as the only character truly named and given the most human and nuanced presentation. So Billy wins out as Def Leppard's most successful cinematic anti-hero and character. We'll draw things to a sudden conclusion in a moment, but as we often do, we'll also have our miscellaneous section soon, two steps behind, which will follow after the music and the crowd noise as usual. And what we have for you this time round is part one of the conversation between myself and two massive Def Leppard fans, Dave Church and Chris Preston, all about collecting Def Leppard music and memorabilia. So think of this as a double bill, if you will, and stick around for the second movie later on. To conclude, Pyromania is not a concept album. It's not knowingly littered with references to movies or words and sounds that evoke the cinema. Neither was Billy's Got a Gun written to be a song for a movie soundtrack. However, somehow, in the early 80s, with the creation of Pyromania, the influence of movies seeped in, it's undeniable, and did so in the way that we covered in our introduction at the beginning when we talked about all of those other songs too. But arguably the song where the influence of movies seeped in the most and weaved itself into the very fabric of the song in subtle and different ways was Billy's Got a Gun. Inspired by a gritty, unsettling urban movie like Death Witch, it's there in the heaviness of the music and the atmosphere. There's the unusual rhythm and the rising tension as well. It's there in the 80s special effects and evenly the seemingly throwaway electronic section at the end arguably serves a purpose in reflecting the unnerving subject matter. It's about a wronged guy in the underground with a gun in his pocket ready to go off. It's a song with genuine narrative worthy of a movie, a story that unfolds centred around a troubled boy from New York City. Not called Peter Mensch, but called Billy. So no, Pyromania and Billy's Got a Gun are not knowingly about movies. But there's definitely something cinematic about Pyromania, and Billy's Got a Gun is the most cinematic song of them all. Do you agree? Can you feel it in the air? Hello, Neil here, and welcome to the Two Steps Behind section of the podcast. You'll be happy to know that you're going to get to hear a couple of different voices to mine in a moment. However, before I forget, I'd like to give a quick credit to Bill Gorick. Firstly, I can confirm that Bill is in no way connected to Billy from Billy's Got a Gun, although he is connected to episode 10 of Def Left Pod, the previous episode. And you may recall I said that I credit the people who came up with the Steve Clark moments that we had. Well, it was Bill who spotted the similarity between Armageddon and the T-Rex song, Get It On, or Bang A Gong, as it's known in the States. So thank you very much for that, Bill. 
Right then, on to the main content of this episode's Two Steps Behind. Now, normally this section is related in some way to the body of the episode. The only tenuous link I can find this time round is that the first ever Def Leppard record that I personally bought contained a live version of Billy's Got a Gun. And indeed, it was the very live version we featured in this episode and was on the back of the Love Bite single. So for me, it's at the heart and the start of my own relationship with the music of Def Leppard and the first item in my very modest collection. And my collection does pale in significance to the gentleman in the conversation that you're about to hear. So these two fellas have so much Def Leppard stuff, it's untrue. And I was intrigued to have a chat with them and find out, A, just about some of the cool stuff that they got, and B, to talk about the idea of collecting itself and in general, and why do it at all. So we've got Chris Preston, who has his very own weekly podcast and rock show on Boom Radio, and that's called My Rock and Roll Heaven. Check that out. You can find that via the Podbean app. And he's also got a new YouTube channel. So if you search My Rock and Roll Heaven, you'll find it no problem at all. And he's currently got a couple of Def Leppard related videos on there where he's talking through his collection and there's more of those videos to come. And then secondly, we've got Dave Church. Now, Dave is a prolific poster in the various online Def Leppard communities. He always has loads of interesting stories to share. So look out for Dave Church or Churchy on either the Rock Brigade Pro Boards Forum or on the Def Leppard Vault Forum. He's all over them like a cheap suit. So without further ado... Here's part one of my chat with the lads. Here with me today, I've got two massive Def Leppard fans who also have significant Def Leppard collections. First up, I've got Chris Preston. Hi, Chris. How are you today? Hello, Neil. I am well. Excited to talk about Def Leppard, of course, but also all the various pieces that we have. And uh, thanks for asking me to do this. Much appreciated. That's great. Thank you. And Dave, how are you today? Uh, Fantastic, mate. And... uh... As Chris has just said, it's a pleasure to be invited on to uh, share with fellow collectors this evening. It might sound like I've actually got the three of us on in particular to almost have a United Nations of interesting accents, but it's not about the accents, yeah. okay? <laughs> it's actually it's about Def Leppard and it's about the idea of collecting Def Leppard stuff. We'll get into the idea of why both of you collect and, and, and the ins and outs of that, but to start off with something specific, and I'll start with you, Chris, and Dave, I'll come to you with the same question so you can get your thinking hat on. You've got a sort of significant collection. Of that collection and of the things that you've still got now, Chris, what was the very, very first piece? Yes, so interesting that the very first piece in my collection might seem like it came much later because obviously Def Leppard's been around since the you know, late seventies. Um, I am a child of the eighties. I grew up in the eighties. So I discovered Def Leppard later being, you know, mid eighties, a friend of mine actually gave me a mixtape that had photograph on it. And I was like, Oh my God. And this would have been like 1980. It would have been the summer of 85 when I was going into like grade 10. So that's I I discovered Def Leppard at that time frame. So I didn't own anything of theirs um, at that point. And the first actual piece I got, which I still have, is actually the 45 for women. As everybody knows, Def Leppard released Pyromania and had that huge gap, which mm. we could talk about for years until they released Hysteria. So I didn't actually buy anything myself Def Leppard related until the summer of 87 
Women was released in North America as the first single, which mm. it was not in the UK. And very interestingly enough, um, women tanked in Canada and the US in terms of a single. But that's the first piece I ever bought. I still got it. It's in good condition. And that's the very beginning of where the collecting came into play. It all started that summer of 87 in terms of physical copies of things for me. What's on the B-side to that, um, Chris? The B-side of women is, oh, geez, what is it? (laughs) You know what? Let me just take a quick look. It was, well, I think it was Tear It Down, actually. All right. Yeah, because I think Tear It Down was the B-side to Animal when that was released here in the UK. That would probably make sense, put the same B-side on whatever the first single is. It's interesting that Women was the first single in the US and Canada because, you know, I think Animal would have been the better choice to kick it off. But my understanding was that Women had a little bit more of an edge and it yeah. was a, bit, a little bit more heavy and they wanted to do that in um, in the US and Canada. Yeah, it's, it's so it's the original version of Tear It Down as the B-side. So it's ah. slightly different on the Adrenalize album when they remixed it and kind of re-recorded it. So it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's my my first piece. All right, cool. And Dave, can you match Chris's um, women's single? What, what was the very first thing you got? I've got a similar story to you, actually, Chris, because I, I was 12 when Hysteria came out. And back then, you know, I hadn't discovered my love of music. There were things we were listening to, which were just sort of on the charts. But I didn't actually own a single record, tape, CDs where I remember... Hysteria came out on CD, and it was pretty much billed as the CD that you can buy, one of the first records on CD. And it was in the summer holiday, and I was literally just in the street outside of the house with a few friends, and uh, one of my friends, who's called Rebecca, and I knew his sister, like Bon Jovi, and uh, she was like a big fan. And I'd never even knew Bon Jovi. And she came down and she said, uh, I've got a tape I think you should listen to. So she gave me a little similar tape as, as Chris had, and I had just a little one tape, tape player, and she copied Hysteria for me. And I sat there, and as soon as I heard the opening riff of women, ah, oh, it, it was Star Wars for the years, as Phil Collin has <laughs> said before. And I just listened to that tape over and over again, and at the time I was a paper boy, so I was delivering for the South Wales Echo Papers, and I was getting paid five pounds a week. And I went to uh, a local town, and you remember this, Neil, an old shop called Woolworths. Yeah, all the series of the tapes, yeah. And um, two weeks later, luckily, I had ten pound in my pocket, and I was thrilled to bits to see Asteria on tape cassette for £10. So I bought that. I played it so much over the years, as obviously we're talking over over Skype, I've completely worn out all of the labelling of it, but I still have the original little inlay booklet, and I have the original little card for the Animal Instinct book as well. So of all of the Steely copies, this is the original that I still have. So still the pride of the collection. The tape, the start of the obsession, but the obsession is a passion, not an obsession. What's really interesting, I wasn't actually going to talk about me because people get to hear me all of the time, but very, very quickly, two things that come to mind there is 
firstly, Woolworths or Woolies, as we called it, that's where I bought my very first Def Leppard item as well. And secondly, like both of you, my mine was from the Hysteria album as well. Mine was the twelve-inch single to Love Bites. Um, I bought that from Woolies. So it's interesting that we all seem to have been hooked around that um, Hysteria time. So no, yeah. fantastic. Obviously, people listening can't see what we can see at the moment. But Dave, um, I'm looking at the room behind you. It's somewhat of a shrine to to, to Def Leppard. So I Love was it. just wondering, could you maybe like sort of summarize as best you can summarize maybe like the type of thing you got in your collection, how big it is, and then and then secondly, why? That that's a simple <laughs> question. Why? <laughs> okay. Why? So it's, off, it's off you go. Well, basically, we, we could do a bit of uh, a bit of promotion here for the Def Leppard Vault Forum. I put up pictures of my entire collection. So my collection's got over 800 pieces, and it doesn't matter if your collection, I always say this, if you've got 10 pieces in your collection, or you're the guy out there who's got 10,000 pieces in his collection, your collection is unique, is special, is priceless. The attached memories, the times, the dates, the places that we can put to, to them is phenomenal. So obviously for your listeners, my quite large bedroom is the Def Leppard Man Cave, basically, which includes <laughs> all of my uh, signed photographs. I've been very blessed to have met all of the band um, on 12 different occasions, going back to the Slang Tour, uh, up until the Stevie and More Tour. And then I've got collages of all of the pictures, uh, as I said, the signed um, things, limited edition collector's piece that you could buy on the Def Leppard store. And I, I, I loved, as I said earlier, just seeing just that one piece that I've never seen before. And God willing, if I was lucky enough, I could find one day to add to the collection. So on the Def Leppard, on the Vault Forum, I have, um, as I say, I put all the pictures of everything, apart from certain recordings that are not legally bought, but we do collect. <laughs> I have put every picture of everything um, on the Vault Forum. So if anybody did want to uh, just click into my profile, David Church, you can see pictures of everything, which is effectively the man cave okay so dave you mentioned there about finding things that you hadn't seen before or you you know maybe you didn't know existed or you you didn't have is that the motivation why you go beyond maybe just like buying all of the albums buying all of the singles and then maybe having a couple of programs is that the key to it these rare things as well are maybe not many other people have got is it about having everything what what is it exactly why you go beyond just getting the albums just getting the singles for example yeah right so uh, you know back in the day i don't know if you remember neil but uh you know i wasn't even aware of like kerrang magazine or metal hammer when i was 12 years of age and few chris it was probably the circus magazines and hit parade and you know u.s publications as well and as I was a paper boy, there was a chap on my estate and he had this magazine called Record Collector. So that sparked my interest. Mm -hmm. And for once a month before delivering, I'd have 20 minutes and sit through reading this Record Collector. And then to my amazement, at the back of Record Collector, there were these listings 
for, you know, collections for sale, record shops throughout the whole of the UK. And there was Def Leppard, 7-inch, Armageddon, poster bag, Canadian single. What is this? I, I, I want to get it. <laughs> I'd be saving up all of my pocket money, my paper round money. Um, when Record Collector came out, I, I would buy it. And then straight away, I was making phone calls to Canada, Eden, to some strange uh, shop saying, I want this item. Can you reserve it for me? And then running up to the post office to send a postal office check because I was too young for a bank account mm. to send off. And then six weeks later, I can remember Armageddon's seven-inch postal bag from Canada thinking, this is not available in the UK. And that really sparked, right, I need to collect every single UK edition, every format that's available. So particularly I remember when the action single came out and you could buy the CD single and it had the little booklet for the history of all of the UK releases. So that kind of became the checklist to tick off that I wanted to complete the UK. But if I could get something from the US, Canada, France, Japan even, that would just be a, a bonus in the collection. You've touched on there, Dave, and I'll come over to you, Chris. And Dave touched on there about having um, every format. And I know you in particular have got many formats of different various um, Def Leppard albums and what have you. Maybe first and foremost, knowing that you like to collect multiple formats of the same thing, what's the motivation behind that for you? That's a good question. And people think I'm nuts when they see that I've got, <laughs> why do you need hysteria on CD, cassette, vinyl? You know, what's why? What's the point? I mean, for me, it comes down to, um, I think, number one, I'm a music fan. Number two, I'm also a collector. I have various collections of other things as well. Um, but in terms of having different versions, I like to, well, I, we, we all grew up at a time when, you know, physical media in terms of music was what we bought, right? So we bought the cassettes, we bought the CDs, we bought the albums. So for me, it's about, you know, I'll sit down and pull out Hysteria. I'll throw it on the record player. I'll read the, I've read the liner notes 50,000 times. <laughs> I think I could recite them to you. But then, you know, I've, I'll pop in set and I'll look through the, the same thing. I'll look through the jewel card and, and read it. And it's about having, no matter what format it is, whether it's a cassette or a CD or an LP or a single, it's about having that tactile physical experience of as you're listening to it, you know, taking in the artwork, enjoying the photos that are included inside. And I think that's what's missing. I well, I miss it massively, but I think that's what's missing today from a lot of music is there isn't that connection that people have with the actual physical media where you would sit down and as I said, you would, you know, you'd listen to hysteria 65 minutes long. You'd sit there and listen to it. But that whole 65 minutes, you're looking at the artwork, you're reading the liner notes. Um, you know, Hysteria was one of, I think, one of the great albums of the 80s in terms of what they did with when they released it and all that information they put into it. You know, when they told kind of the history of what had been going on with the band over four years. So I really enjoy that aspect of, you know, having the physical copies that I can do all that with. And I like to... 
again, people think I'm nuts. Well, why can't you just listen to it on Spotify or stream it? Why do you need to listen to the album on vinyl and on cassette? And I get like people give me grief all the time. I have a massive cassette collection and people are like cassettes are terrible. They were the worst. You know, they sound terrible, but you know, it's a different experience when you're listening to it. It's a different sound when you're listening to it, whether it's on a CD or a cassette or an album. So I like the different experiences you get from the actual listening to it via a different physical format. It, it, I don't know. It's just something that I've always really liked. Like I'll give you an example. I popped in, um, I bought a copy of Pyromania um, on cassette from a guy on Discogs from RCA Music Service in the U.S., and it's pretty beat up, but it's, you know, it's in good shape. And I popped it in as soon as I got it in the mail and threw it in my cassette player and listened to it through. And there were a few glitches here and there, but I was like, oh man, because I remember, you know, when I eventually bought the cassette back in the late 80s, listening to it on my boom box. So mm. it kind of almost transports you back to, you know, that time in your youth when you would pop all these things in and listen to them in different ways. Like in the car, another example. Um, I haven't gotten into collecting eight tracks yet, but a guy that I follow, um, uh, Tim's Vinyl Confessions on, he's on Twitter and on YouTube. He collects eight tracks and he's got copies of Hysteria, not Hysteria, he's got, I think, Pyromania, et cetera. But I remember my dad with eight tracks, you know, in the car and again, listening to it in a different format. So maybe I'll get into eight tracks at some point too with Def Leppard, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're not you're not quite there yet. What what is the one thing that you have the most versions of them? Is is it hysteria? I have so much hysteria stuff. A lot. Um I can't tell you I'm just looking at a lot of it now up here. I can't tell you how many exactly, but um multiple too many to count. <laughs> well, and that's it, right? And it's funny, I just ordered another um copy of hysteria that's on the way in the mail, but um I've got different versions from different countries. But in terms of actual um, pieces, I think Rocket might be the actual like one individual piece that I have uh, the most, yeah. um, which is interesting that Rocket seemed to have been released in many, many different versions. Um, but Hysteria, I'm going to say that rough guess would probably be I've got, including all the singles and everything, I've got to have 75 or 80 pieces as a whole right when you're talking about lp singles cassettes cds reissues <laughs> all of that yeah. stuff well you can never have too much hysteria in your life i think we can all agree on that and dave what's your most repeated thing Def leopard thing in different formats <laughs> right the the studio album as itself I've got 21 different copies of Hysteria, right. which is obviously all of the picture discs, the special edition, the orange vinyl, uh, repeated, um, you know, re-releases, expanded, um, the CDs, the tape. Included in that is my Hysteria Platinum Disc, which is just a, a replica, rip-off, poor man's copy, but it was still very expensive. If you're talking as the Stevia album, I don't know if you boys recall that on the Def Leppard website was the competition to help celebrate the 33rd year anniversary of Stevia. Yeah. So, uh, while I was alone in the house, it took me six hours, and I took every single bit of a Stevia 
uh, memorabilia that I have. I converted my living room uh, and took everything out, just left uh, a few things in. You know, the settee uh, came in handy to put everything up. And I counted over 300 pieces from my hysteria collection, photographed everything. That That's on the vault forum as well, all of those pictures. Do either of you do that thing where you buy a version of it and then leave it all sealed and never even open it? No. Right, okay, so we've got a no from Dave and we've got a <laughs> yes from Chris. Okay, so I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm, I'm lying you back here now on the, uh, the psychiatrist chair. <laughs> Again, so why would you buy? And by the way, I'm not. I'm not being critical. I'm just I'm genuinely interested. Why would you? Why would you buy a piece of music and then not open it and therefore be able to listen to it? So I do this only in very limited cases mm-hmm. where I, and it probably is. I can. I can probably say it's only a handful of bands I will ever do this with. And they're my, they would be considered my favorites or ones that I collect. So being that I'm a massive Def Leppard collector as well as fan, I've already got, you know, multiple copies open that I listen to. There's something about for me buying the pristine sealed version of something that is just. I don't, it's hard to explain the psychology of it, but it's like, this has, I, I, I guess I think back to like, okay, this album was released, whatever it may have been, history in 1987. This has not been opened or listened to by anyone. Mm. And there's just that cool factor of, now there's a couple of them I've got. So I actually have a sealed copy of Hysteria in a frame behind me um, with the original hype label on it. And there's actually the price sticker from the store mm-hmm. is still on it. Um, and I got that from a guy in the US. Um, oh, they're expensive, but you know, depending on again, I don't do it for a lot of things. For me, in that case with Def Leppard and Hysteria, especially, I wanted a sealed pristine copy to literally put on my wall. Yeah. Right. Like so it's a to me, like, and I think Phil or an interview with Joe and he related that Phil said that about hysteria, you know, I don't care if anyone buys it, but it's a piece of art. I'm gonna hang it on my wall. And so that's what it comes down to kind of with me with buying sealed copies of things where I want to have it as no one's ever opened this. It's completely unheard. And there's just that awesome, cool factor of, wow, it's like I could have walked into the store today and bought this. I mean, I don't know who would have bought it in 1987 and not opened it. I would have opened it in 1987. (laughs) You know, one thing that 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 really... um means something to me that you said there as well was about the hype stickers on them because i've like me personally in the last year or so i've rediscovered collecting vinyl again so i always used to collect vinyl i've got loads of it up in like the loft from when i was up to about the age of 20 but maybe with um the covid times and lockdown and and what have you I've, i've very much got back into it again and one of the things i love and then hate is the packaging of vinyl is brilliant in and of itself but when you get it wrapped up and then you've got these hype stickers on and the hype stickers are like really good and they add to the overall sort of art of the cover and it feels like sacrilege ripping that off and it's almost like you rip off 50 percent of the design these days so i could definitely understand it as well from the hype sticker side of things and the other the other other stuff that they throw on the front of it but no good good i'm glad you've got your sealed copy of hysteria and it makes you happy 
interestingly, this isn't Def Leppard related and this isn't music related. But while we're talking about here about collecting things and the importance of keeping things and the importance of um, physical objects, just um, one thing to to horrify <laughs> horrify you both for a moment. Other end of the scale, a friend of mine, he reads his books on the bus traveling to work. And then what he does is any pages that he's read, he rips out and throws away. And then as he gets to the end of the book, so he's literally destroying the book behind him as he moves on through that book. And then by the time he gets to the last, the end of the book and throws that last bit away, there's no book left at all. So to be honest, I would say I think what I do at a smaller level and what you two do at a bigger level is far more sane and makes far more sense than destroying something as you go through it. It's like postmodern art or something like that. Don't lend your mate your Def Leppard books, Neil. No way. No, no, he's not. He's not getting my animal instinct. Uh, no way. I'd be, I'd be lost without that. You know, <laughs> anyway. the, other about, the other thing about collecting, Neil, is that, and especially in music, and again, the difference between the, I would say the '80s, probably just because it was the the peak of it, is that there was so when an album was released in the '80s, and like Def Leppard's a prime example of this, that the painstaking effort that went into creating artwork all the different formats, all the different versions of things, special editions, like it created excitement, right? Mm. In terms of the music fan like me, I'm like, oh my God, I want to get the 12-inch single of Armageddon it because there's stuff on the back, like the Release Me B-side, which is hilariously brutal, Mm. but that's stuff you're not going to find anywhere else, right? So it's fine that they reissue all of that later on streaming, but it's not the same thing as having the physical thing in your hand that you've captured a moment in time. Like this is stuff that will never happen again. Right. So ask you can, again, you can relate this to collecting stamps or coins or whatever, but you're actually maintaining a piece of history. You know, David and I have an archive of, in this case, Def Leppard material that is preserved, you know, whether or not anyone sees this other than my family and on the internet, who knows, but to me, it's not even really about the potential value of it in the terms of a dollar sense. It's a fact that, you know, We've got these pieces of history, music history, that you know we will hopefully keep for the rest of our lives and pass down to remember a time when, you know what, when music was released at one point, they spent a lot of money on promoting it and creating these pieces of art, really. Oh, I was just going to allude back to Chris. I totally get why Chris keeps certain things sealed. Uh, for me, like I've discussed this with fellow fans before, I'm never, ever going to sell that collection. Even when I retire, would I want to flog the collection and, you know, have a holiday or maybe uh, a car, whatever it's worth at that point? I will never do that. I will leave it in the will to, you know, younger members of the family. And, you know, you'd hope that they might take some pride in your collection, may enjoy it. God forbid they ever sell it, but obviously I wouldn't be around <laughs> to give them the rollicking for selling the collection if that's something that they want to do. So with the hype stickers, I keep them and I very carefully, you know, cut them out and then place them in the polythene wrapping to put back in. Excellent. Uh, good stuff. 
Right. So what we'll do now then is we'll move on a little bit from the idea of like the concept of collecting and we'll start getting into the we'll start getting into Def Le- your Def Leppard collections themselves now. So we're gonna have a little bit of um, have a little bit of fun with that. So I want you to imagine that your house is on fire. That's not fun, admittedly, but we're only imagining it's fine, we're in a safe place here. This is a circle of trust. I want you both to imagine that your house is on fire. You only have time to collect three items from your Def Leppard collection. So what I'm going to do is go between the two of you, okay, and I'm going to ask you what you would grab hold of and why. We'll go down in order of importance. I never told you necessarily we were going to do that. So that last one, that has to be the one, okay? So we'll start off with the third. Uh, Dave, we'll start with you. The house is on fire. You, you, you're ignoring <laughs> everything else. The cat, the dog, your family, all of that. that, that, that that's irrelevant. Yeah. That's irrelevant compared to all of this Def Leppard stuff, okay? So the first thing of the three that you um, grab hold of to save, what would it be? Right. I love this question, Neil, right? As a high school teacher, I do this with my pupils. And they'll have the answers, the Xbox, the Game Boy, X, etc. But what I'm always looking for, and I say to them, your family's safe, your pets are safe. I, What I always want to get out of them is really what I'm going to give you as my answers for answer one and two. But for answer three, it has to be something physical. And very simply, since collecting, age 12, now being 45, 33 years of collecting, I never owned the original Red Label EP. I've only ever seen it come up for auction four times on eBay UK. I was completely outbid on three occasions, and it was crazy money. It was basically get get a new credit card to buy the EP, and this was the EP without the cover, without the original lyric insert as well. And then just last year, purely by chance, it was a Sunday evening. I'd finished all my work, my planning for the children for the week. And I thought, let's just take a little look on eBay. And to my unbelievable uh, amazement and astonishment, there was a guy selling the EP, mint condition, with the cover, mint condition, no lyric sheet, unfortunately. And he was offering, not an auction, Buy it now. Out came the credit card. A week later, my collection was completed. So that is the one physical thing. 33 years. We know there's only a 1,000 Red Label EPs in the world. And I once met Joe in 2003, and he was signing my yellow label for me. And he told me a brilliant anecdote that he was in a record store in Japan and there was the red label EP with cover, no lyric book, for 4,000 US dollars. So that just goes to show what people would be willing to pay. So I'd have to save that one physical thing because maybe everything else could be replaced. But I'm highly doubtful I could replace the original EP. So Dave, you don't need to answer this, but you know, Everyone, everyone's going to be thinking it. So I need, I need, on behalf of our listeners, I need to ask the question. You don't need to give us the exact figure, because you know this, this is deeply, deeply personal financial okay. information. But can you give us a, a ballpark figure? How many numbers were included? At the end of the day, right? 
Um, you know, I respect people and people have told me what they have paid. Um, I, I posted things on other people's behalf um, and I've been respectful to them. I haven't said what they've paid because they wanted to keep that private. But, you know, I do know what they've paid. So when the original EPs came up, there was one horrible condition. It was like 700 quid. And no way, you know, I would want something. I would want at least very good. It, it wouldn't have to be mint. But I wouldn't pay 700 quid for that. Yeah. So the closest I got was with a woman who actually used to work with Joe Elliott in a factory in Sheffield. And Joe pestered her to buy the original EP. She had <laughs> a letter of provenance from Joe. Um, and she had a photograph of her and Joe as well. And this was this was in the four figures. And basically, um, I wouldn't give names out on your show. Family show being everything, Neil. But yeah. uh, I offered her a thousand pound, and that for me, you know, it would be an eye-watering credit card bill for mm. another twelve mm. months. But I thought, right, I'm going to do it. This is unique. A thousand pound. She had a counter offer fifteen hundred quid from a record shop in the UK. I immediately, you know, messaged her back and I said, listen, I, you know, a thousand pound. That is me done. But I said, look, on behalf of all collectors, I don't think you appreciate really what you really do have here. And mm -hmm. I said, this well-known record shop in the UK, even if they're offering you 1,500 quid, I guarantee they will slap it up to 2,500 pounds. Yeah. So I told her that she really needed to get another 500. I said, I would, you know, £2,000 would be incredible for you. Lo and behold, she sold it to this company for £2,000. Two days later, this record shop in the UK, in England, not Wales, may I add, 3500 <laughs> quid. That oh, is what they oh slapped straight up. So getting back to me, this is why I was just literally about to wet myself, running to find my credit card, buy it now, £400. Oh, oh, that's good. What a bargain. That's good. Bargain. And it's in good nick, is it, Dave? 400 credits in mint condition. Absolutely pristine. And the guy I bought it from uh, had played it once. Uh, it is phenomenal. 400 quid, you know. That's good. And I was looking at something in terrible condition for 700. Didn't want to pay, but I would have just so I would have owned it. So I hung out another three years, got it for 400 quid with the cover. And now I have a photocopy of the original handwritten letter from Joe Elliott to people who were writing to his home address. And I have a photocopy, very kindly, from our fellow collector, John Lewis, of the original lyric insert as well. So, although not the real thing, that, that completes my collection. That is the missing piece of everything ever released in the UK. So I'm very happy, Benny. No, that's brilliant, Dave. Excellent. And then, so Chris, what's number three? What that house is on fire. The flames, the flames are licking at your nostrils. You can smell the burnt hair. But what is it that you? Um, what is it that you you dive for? So I've got. Um, this is going to go into one of my things that I bought sealed. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got. Do you guys remember when CDs came out and they were in long boxes? Obviously, people can't see it. It's like a normal. It's three times the length, vertically. Yeah. 
of a normal CD box. So this was done because when CDs came out, they didn't fit in the record bins, right? So when that first, like, so this was 92 that Adrenalize obviously came out. Um, so this is a copy of Def Leppard's Adrenalize sealed. It's a little beat up. It's got a little bit of corners that are kind of dinged, but it's a sealed copy of Adrenalize in the original long box. They are very rare, really, with any CD because, and I did this myself, most people, when they bought them, you'd tear open the box, right? The cardboard would be mm. destroyed and you chuck it. But there is a ton of, there's a niche market for people uh, selling and buying CD long boxes. I've even seen them for sale, just the box itself without the CD. Um, a lot of great artwork, right? Done similar to uh, an LP. You get a much bigger um, version of the artwork, the track listing on the back, etc. cetera. Um, so I found this on... This was an eBay purchase. Um, this is a U.S. copy on Mercury, and I was ecstatic. It was, you know, fairly pricey, but to actually have the long box intact, sealed, was to me, I was like, oh, my God, I got to have that. And I love Adrenalize, so um, that is one of my must-saves, is getting this sealed CD long box out of the house before the flames get it. I must say, it's really, it is really cool as well. I've never seen one of them before. All right, then. So you've both got one thing each. Excellent. Dave, you're feeling brave. You run back into that house again. You can hear your inanimate object screaming. What's the second Def Leppard thing from your collection that you grab hold of? And if you want to know Dave's answer, check out the next episode of Def Leppard Pod, episode 12, where we'll have... Def Leppard Collectibles Chat Part 2 The Revenge Will it be what The Godfather 2 is to The Godfather? We'll find out next time. So until then thank you very much for listening take it easy, take care I'll see you soon